Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, Bible Quest TV, the Wednesday edition Bible Quack, guys. That's our new that's our new title. How do you guys like that? That doesn't sound very good. All right. Well, I guess we'll stick with Bible Quest. <laughs> How you doing, Jeff? Good to see you. Doing very well. Good to see you, Chase. All right. And as always, we also have Joe Works from Elmira, but currently in Fairlawn, it looks like. How you doing, Joe? I am uh, in Fairlawn today. I'm good. Thank you. Good. Uh, well, I appreciate you guys jumping on today. Uh, today, we've got an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about demons and demon possession of the Bible. And one of the things I want to do, I want to encourage the viewers to do, is I want you to look back at, at your childhood or growing up, or maybe even before you came to the knowledge of the gospel or knew anything about the Bible, and think about what do you know about demons? I'm going to ask Joe this question himself because he, he was not, as we say a lot, raised in the church, uh, as we put it. But Joe, before you became a Christian, what did you think about demon possession? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I've forgotten some of the things, but I think for a large part, what I thought about was almost like um, Halloween-ish of, uh, you know, spirits and so forth floating around, maybe wreaking havoc in some way, um, particularly uh, possession from, uh, you know, movies, whatever, uh, some demon, you know, overtaking somebody's uh, uh, life and uh, that, that sort of thing. But um, especially, I just think the, the idea of them just going around causing mischief, yeah, I, I, and I think that's definitely the what the movies paint. It's just this crazy thing and this crazy spirit world that comes into somebody and it just wreaks havoc throughout the entire uh, city or, or whatever you want to call it. And so I think there's a huge want um, for us as Christians, whenever we talk about demons, to just run away from the subject altogether, right? Um, because people, that's what they think about it. And so if we say we believe in demons or we believe in demon possession, we're just going to be thought as is crazy. So let's just run away from it as far as we can. Well, and there, there are a lot of people who, who are, they're worried, they're afraid. They're afraid that, uh, they could maybe take, be taken over by a demon and they don't know that they can have any confidence that won't happen. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility as well. Um, and so today what we want to do um, as we go through this study is to appeal to Scripture and truly think through what the Bible has to say about demons and demon possession. And one of the things that you guys might have saw me doing here is I keep making a distinction between demon and demon possession. Uh, why is it that we want to separate those two categories as we go forward today? Well, I think for one thing, there certainly are, there is such a thing as demons, and there can be demons whether the demons are possessing anyone or not, and so they're kind of two separate questions. Yeah, I, I think so too. So just let's keep that in mind as we go forward today. Um, and as far as the audience goes, we obviously, we encourage your participation. We encourage your questions and your thoughts as we go through this as biblically as we can. Um, so you guys, are you ready to go to work? Yep, let's go. All right. Let's think about the demons and what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, guys, are there any Old Testament passages that come to your mind that talk about demons or unclean spirits? Well, the ones that come to my mind immediately may not be the same ones that come to your mind immediately, but the ones that come to my mind are Saul, where uh, an evil spirit from the Lord um, afflicted him. Uh, there is the passage in 1 Kings chapter 22, 
where God sends a lying spirit uh, to the prophets that are telling Ahab he, he's going to be victorious. Um, you know, that troubles some people sometimes, the idea that God could send a lying spirit. Remember the story of Job. In the story of Job, here is Satan, the devil, who comes among the sons of God before the throne of God, and um, he is permitted to go and afflict Job. And the, the lesson to draw from this is simply he could not do anything unless God allowed it. Uh, the God that we have is a God who loves us. He is a God who is good, and he's a God who will punish evil. And he's going to punish the devil and his angels. Matthew, the 25th chapter, says so. But he's also a God who allows us the choice, the freedom to make a choice to serve him or not, and he allows the devil a choice. And he has not brought an end to that ability to choose by simply eradicating all influences for evil for the time being. Yeah, um, and I, I think those are some really key passages to bring up when you're thinking about just what evil influence is in the Old Testament. Um, as far as specific mentions of demons in the Old Testament go, there's really only a few mentions of it uh, in the Old Testament, one of them in which is in Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, in verse 17. And it says there, and of course this is in the Song of Moses, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Uh, and so there was apparently a time in Israel's history where they were sacrificing to demons who were not God. Now, uh, Leviticus 17 mentions worshiping the, uh, or sacrificing to the goat demons. In yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, just the goat demon. And what does that mean? Who is that? Uh, and then another passage that, that I, I saw and uh, thought about would be in the Psalms, in Psalm 106, uh, starting in verse 36. Psalm 106, starting in verse 36, says there, And served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters. Uh, so, so if I can interject what? this thought, the fact that they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons, I don't know that that tells us very much because they sacrificed their children to Moloch. And was Moloch a real being? I think the point being made in the Old Testament is he, he, he was not. He was something they imagined. But there really are demons. So in a passage like Psalm 106 or in Leviticus 17, where they sacrifice the goat demons, does that mean in their own imagination there was this goat demon and they're sacrificing to it and it's really nothing? Or does that mean in their idolatry they have been influenced by some demonic influences? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, and I don't disagree at all. Um, and one of the things I think I'm really trying to hit on as we go forward is that the mention of demons and the idea of demons is really not that much in the Old Testament, is it, guys? Nope. Yeah, one, one place you might one place you might see that uh, that question, um, and maybe it intersects here where we can make an application in Second Chronicles eleven in uh, the talking about when Rehoboam becomes king. <clears throat> uh, uh, down in uh, I'm sorry, when Jeroboam becomes king. Uh, down in verse 13, uh, and from all their territories, the priests and Levites who were in all Israel took their stand from him. Uh, for the Levites left their common 
lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests of the Lord. Verse 15, this is from the New King James. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. I think maybe other translations say pagan worship there or something like that. Mine has the word satyrs. Okay. Uh, the New American Standard does. And to be honest with you, that's the first time I've ever seen that word. So, yeah. So I think the idea is that the, the, they, they are worshiping them to these pagan gods, but in effect, then that is demonic. Uh, that, that's the way that I've understood that verse. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think that Jeroboam had really set up a worship to, to some demon kind of fig, uh, figure. Uh, but that, that's in effect what he was doing. That's the way that I've taken that verse. Which verse right. did which verse did you say satyrs or satyrs in? That would be Second Chronicles eleven verse fifteen. Okay, I was looking at the account in First Kings thirteen. So Second Chronicles eleven verse fifteen. Verse fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, uh, I think these are all helpful to to just kind of drive home the point we're seeing. The Old Testament doesn't have a lot to say about demons and demon possession. And so if you were a first-time reader of the Bible, and I've known Christians who have done this, who when they, when they came to the knowledge of the Lord, it was actually when they just picked up their Bible and started in Genesis and read Revelation. And if you're somebody who's going to do that, you're going to start with the Old Testament, and then you're going to move to the New Testament. What are some of the key things that happen, and I know this might be a vague question, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Well, all of a sudden you start seeing a lot of demon possessions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Jesus casts out demons frequently, and his disciples cast out demons. Yeah, uh, I, I take the Gospel of Mark. It's one of my favorite Gospels to go through with people. And, I mean, just right off the bat, you see an exorcism after exorcism, and Jesus encountering people who are demon-possessed. And it's like, whoa, 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 where is this coming from? Uh, we didn't see much of any of this in the Old Testament. Why all of a sudden are there demons, and why are they possessing people? So, guys, that's the question I want to ask. Why? Why is that the case? And what passages would you go to to answer that question? Well, all right. So what we've said so far is there, there are some hints of demons in the Old Testament. We've not mentioned Zechariah 13 yet. We'll get to that in a few minutes. It uses the expression unclean spirits. Uh, if I recall correctly, in some of the Gospels where you have demon possession being mentioned in one account or demons mentioned in one account, and in another account it may use the expression unclean spirit. So it seems like those terms may be used interchangeably. But we do suddenly see uh, it's a frequent thing in the New Testament, whereas in the Old Testament it doesn't seem to be that common a thing. And, and then we see this passage in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, in verse 17, Jesus has sent the 70 disciples out two by two. They come back just seemingly amazed and exultant that by, in Jesus' name, even the demons are subject to them. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in thy name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan fall on his lightning from heaven. Jesus connects the demon activity, and specifically his disciples being able to cast out demons with Satan falling from heaven. Now, right here, it's important that we make this clear. Jesus is not talking about how Satan became an evil being back before creation. As soon as you say Satan falls or Satan fell, a lot of people, their mind goes to, 
well, that must be back before the Garden of Eden when Satan became evil. That's not what the Bible's talking about. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, it talks about Satan's fall in connection with the Son of God, the Christ, being caught up to heaven. Uh, Jesus defeats the devil, takes away his power, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 13 and following, when he went through death. Jesus died so that he could be raised from the dead and conquered death and take away the, the devil's power, which was death. That's Satan's fall. And so to your question, Chase, it seems that we see a lot of demon possessions and a lot of activity casting out demons as something that anticipates, or in the case of the book of Acts, uh, retrospectively looks back to Jesus' victory over the king of the demons, over the devil. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good way to put that. Um, Jesus, he's given an opportunity to prove that he is the Son of God and show that he is going to conquer over Satan. Um, another passage I think that's interesting, because uh, one of the questions I had early on in my study of demonology, is there a fundamental difference between demons and unclean spirits mm-hmm. in, the Old Te- or in the New Testament? Excuse me. Uh, and, and I think there is one passage that, that really answers that question well, uh, and maybe I'm the only one who's had that question, but in Mark, the fifth chapter, Mark chapter five and verses one through 20, we won't take the time to read that whole text, but you have the garrison demoniac who isn't being able, he's not able to be bound by anything. That's how mm-hmm. demon possessed he really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Mark, the fifth chapter and verse seven, it says, he comes to Jesus, he shouts with a loud voice, he says, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Right. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out before I, I make my case. What are some things that this unclean spirit understood about Jesus? Knew who he was. Yeah, he knew who he was. And not only did he know who he was, he knew what he could do. And that is, of course, torment him. Mm-hmm. And in recounting this a little later in the story, uh, you go down to verse 16. It says, those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, yep. all about the swine. Yep. And so that term is actually used interchangeably between the unclean spirit and the demon-possessed man. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I would understand those two things to be the same, at least in this context. Another passage that might go along with that, and this may, again, depend on your translation, but Luke four thirty-three. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Okay. Oh, again, translations may differ from that, but you have that idea, again, spirit, unclean, demon, all used to describe the same situation, the same identity there. And so then, then you have in Matthew, the 25th chapter, the reference to the devil and his angels being cast into the lake of fire. And you think of angels as messengers, messengers of Satan. Um, I don't know that I'm, I'm prepared to say there's a one-to-one correspondence there, but you have uh, the reference in Matthew, the 12th chapter, to Satan's kingdom. And so he has this, this group of supernatural beings that he seems to rule over. They're, they do his bidding. They include angels. Um, and the context in Matthew 12 where it talks about Satan's kingdom is a context where Jesus has just cast out a demon. And uh, the point Jesus is making, if I were doing that by the power of the devil, then 
that would be Satan's Satan working against himself because I'd be working against Satan's kingdom at Satan's behest. And so uh, it seems that Satan has a kingdom and that demons are a part of it. Uh, and his angels seem to be a part of it. And, and the unclean spirits and demons, I think you've well shown that those are the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, and just touching to that, your point from Luke, the 10th chapter, that Jesus saw a connection between Satan and the demons. And that when the 70 said, hey, we've been casting these out, Jesus said, well, I've seen Satan falling down uh, like lightning from heaven. And so uh, definitely connected. Uh, guys, so, I think we got a good comment on Facebook, but Jeff, you look like you have something. Well, I was just going to say, so just to kind of to summarize or just to put in a short statement here, what, what we're saying so far is it, it seems that demon possession was a thing in New Testament times, more so than it had been before that, and perhaps more so than it's ever been after that, but that God allowed demon possessions to take place so that Jesus and his disciples could demonstrate their power over Satan's kingdom and all as a part of Satan's, uh, all as a part of Jesus binding the strong man in the language of Matthew chapter 12. Maybe we'll go to that in a minute. And, and ultimately of course is established and, and uh, made clear at the cross, Jesus's yeah. uh, victory over Satan. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Todd Forrest comments and says, I would use John nine three regarding why a man was born blind. Uh, neither this man nor his parents sinned, is what that says, but that the work, works of God should be revealed in him. Then he asks a question. Demon possessions were allowed for the same reason, right? See, he's kind of getting to the point we're making, that there are things that, that uh, have happened. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die so that he, he didn't go immediately when he heard Lazarus was sick, but he allowed him to die so that he could demonstrate his power over death in raising Lazarus from the dead. And I think that's what our, our viewer is saying in John chapter nine. And, and I think that's really what we see in the case of demon possessions. You know, I, if I just interject there, I don't think that that's really much different than even what the Lord allows with Satan himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, God, uh, think back to the story of Job, uh, maybe as the classic example of that, everything that, well, first off, God was the one that initiated that whole conversation with uh, with Satan. Uh, God was the one who called Satan's atten- uh, called uh, Satan's attention to Job. Uh, God was the one that sort of I won't say provoked, but but initiated all of that. Satan was the one who limited. Excuse me, Jesus was, but God was. God was the one who limited Satan what he was allowed to do, and then passages like James five uh, that the Lord. Um, uh, and have you seen what the Lord, what is intended by the Lord? The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So the purpose of that event in Job was to show God's compassion and mercy, or again, as the writer talked about there a moment ago, uh, glorifying God. So God even does that through Satan. Um, it's not it amazing that God can take this being who is in utter rebellion against him and use his deeds against himself, use his deeds to accomplish God's own purposes. He, he did it with Pharaoh in, in Egypt. He, he yeah. All right, guys. Well, I got another passage I, I want to direct our attention well, to. Before you go to that, we do have a viewer's comment. Joe Ham mentions just the word in the New Testament that is translated demon, and it's, it's not a hard word to remember because it's daimonion. That's the Greek word. 
And he mentions that in, in, um, in, Greek, other, in ancient Greek, other than the scriptures, uh, you see this word just used generally of spiritual beings, not necessarily evil spiritual beings. It, it's, it's, a, it's a neutral term. It could be used of benevolent spiritual beings. And that's correct, that in the, in the Bible, there's this word that is used for demons, these spiritual entities that are working at Satan's behest, um, and it's a word that in general Greek was used more generally. <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting background to it. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, thanks for that explanation. But, but what you have, though, there, it, 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 it's a word that had a connotation, it had an association with, with these spiritual beings that the pagans generally believe in that, that are not the true God. Good. Okay, so um, looking at another instance of demon possession and, and uh, exorcism, if you will, Mark, the ninth chapter, right after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, he runs into a crowd who's arguing, and Jesus inquires about their arguing and what they're discussing, and then they start to tell him that they brought to his disciples uh, this young man who had a spirit. He was possessed with the spirit, verse 17 says, and I told your disciples to cast it out, he said, at the end of verse 18, and they could not do it. They, didn't, they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? And he inquires further about the young man, and Jesus ends up throwing this unclean spirit out of this young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets to the point where people think the young man is dead, but Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up. But, guys, the part I want to focus in on is verse 28 and 29, okay? Okay. It's when they get to the house, and his disciples question him privately, and they say, why could we not drive it out? Mm -hmm. And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And, of course, Matthew's account of this same story says, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. So is Jesus making a distinguish between different types of demons? Uh, did he not give them the necessary power to cast out this one type of demon? Or was it something maybe on the apostles? And, and what does it mean that this kind can only come out by prayer? What are your all's thoughts on this text? Well, right before that, he had given them the power to cast out demons when he sent them out. Uh, and so they had this ability to, to do so. Uh, this may be too simplistic, but the, the thought that I've always had with this text is uh, this kind can only come out by prayer. Well, to, to restate that, you can only, that this kind can only come out if you ask for God's assistance. That's what prayer would be. So it seems as if they've maybe tried to cast out this demon without calling upon God. That, that's my understanding as well. And, and then uh, that would sort of go along with the example in Ephesus in Acts the 19th chapter, the Jewish exorcists who are trying to cast out demons. And uh, remember, they, I, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And of course, successful in being able to cast that one out. And we're quite humiliated, even. even. Um, and so it needs to come from the power of God in, in every situation. Yeah, it would certainly seem every time I come to this text with somebody, um, they have done this task before. Right. They had casted out demons before. And in fact, I would submit to you that there were a lot of occasions before this time that they casted out demons. And is it possible that they got a little cocky or 
they got a little used to being able to do this, that they forgot to say a prayer this time. Um, I think that's entirely possible. And I, I don't think it's a simplistic approach. I think it's a logical approach to this. Um, so well, it, it is kind of interesting to think about, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that there is an exact parallel here, but when Moses was up on the mountain at Sinai and the children of Israel deviated, they forgot about God, they went off into idolatry here in this situation. Uh, Jesus is up on the mountain talking to Moses, by the way. Um, and while the disciples are down below, again, failing at, uh, at doing the task that he'd given them to do. Yeah, um, that's a good parallel. I hadn't thought about that. So uh, going down a little further, if you're still in this section of Mark, uh, read with me in verse 38. John said to him, that is Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Hang on, you're back in Mark 9? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in 28 and 29 just a couple of seconds ago. Okay, let's just keep keep everybody up. So we're in Mark 9, what verse now? We're in verse 38. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. So, guys, this this text is interesting to uh, to look at. What what do you think these guys were doing? Do you really think they were casting out demons? I I have assumed they were, but I'm I'm open to hear your thoughts. No, I agree, and I realize the way I phrased that question sounds like I was not agreeing with that. Uh, <laughs> but but I do agree as well that they were casting out demons. John certainly seemed to perceive that they were casting out demons, and Jesus doesn't say that they were not. But in fact, what he does say is, if they're not against us, they're for us. Yeah. But my next question would be, where did they get this authority from? Um, and I, I think that they could only have gotten it from from Jesus uh, to cast out demons. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that's an interesting passage to consider with this idea of demonology and who has the ability to cast them out. Um, but ultimately that authority comes from Jesus. I haven't thought this passage through real carefully, but I've always just kind of thought of this passage kind of in the light of some of the rivalry that seemed to exist between Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. Um, and we, we see hints of that, uh, what is it, in, in the latter part of, of John 3, if I'm thinking right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wonder if the, the group of disciples that were right there, close around Jesus and following Jesus, uh, sometimes uh, had a, a little bit of a, a narrow horizon in, or in their view of who were followers of Jesus, uh, that he had had influence with others. And... Um, given others the power to cast out demons. Yeah, and, and certainly that I think that's the case. You look over at Luke 10, as we referenced earlier, and the 70 that Jesus sent out had the ability to cast out demons, um, and they were not a part of the 12. And so this, this ability went out to a lot of people. Um, let's, uh, let's tackle this next question or comment that we had submitted. It says, can we view demon possession as a fulfillment of God's curse upon Israel worship to others God uh, to other gods? Um, for example, idolatry. So we are we are we going back to Le, uh, Leviticus twenty seven? There, I need to flip back there real quickly. Are we talking about amongst the cursings? Was there a statement back there we're referring to? Uh, let's see if I can turn back there. 
that, that I mean, that sounds like uh, that makes sense to me, but I need to look up the um, penalties of disobedience. It's Le- Leviticus 26, actually. Um, and I guess I'd ask Joe Ham, our viewer here, if he would send us the reference uh, real quickly here. I'll be watching the Facebook comments uh, for that. Okay. Um, but I, I think that that's a good segue um, into what we want to talk about for the, for the later part of the webcast. Um, are there demons today? Are there demon possession today? Um, how do you guys want to go about this and what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously the Bible's the only thing that we have. Um, I, I would suggest the Bible's the only thing that the three of us are going to really trust and probably most of our audience the same way. But much of the world, um, and live, having lived in Brazil, I certainly saw this a great deal in Africa a little bit. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who will just simply look around and say, well, of course there's demon possession. Look at that guy over there. And they'll see somebody who is uh, maybe uh, slobbering on the sidewalk or doing something, you know, crazy. Uh, maybe he's acting in some insane way. And they'll say, clearly, he's possessed by a demon. Um, uh, and you know, I think that's pretty unfortunate that we would just draw that conclusion that just because somebody is out of their mind uh, mentally or chemically or whatever, that that means that, that, that they have a demon. Um, I would suggest that what we need to do is just rely on what the scriptures are teaching and then, and then make judgments about what we see around us based on scriptures as opposed to the other way around. Right. Um, one of the other common thoughts is uh, that, that demons today take place in being either sin or take place in being some type of illness. Um, and I, I want to reiterate something I, I read earlier today um, by a guy named Victor Knowles, he said there are two extremes that we're trying to avoid in the study of demonology. Number one, there's disbelieving that demons exist altogether and just running away from the topic and acting like they don't exist. But then the other extreme, and I think he's right, is blaming demons for all illness and all sin in the world. And I I think he's right. We're trying to find ourselves somewhere in the middle there Um, because certainly my sin is my own. What I did to transgress against God's law is my fault, and that is on me. And there is no demon I can blame that on other than it being my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm rem- reminded of James 1 in uh, verse 14. Um, James 1 in verse 14 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Um, and so it's not that there's a demon in me necessarily, as much as I, I have my own lust and I make my own choices. So, um, so let's, let's do this. Let's back up just a little bit here and kind of big picture. And, and we do need to acknowledge there are spiritual forces at work in our lives. There are spiritual forces in this world that we don't see. I always think of the passage, I think it's Second Kings, the sixth chapter, and Elisha's servant goes out to, I always picture him going out to get the paper, but he steps out in the morning, and, and, and lo and behold, he sees the Syrian army surrounding him, and they've come for Elisha, his master, and he, he's, oh, no, what are we going to do? And, and Elisha says, oh, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And what he 
is able to see then is the the spiritual army of the Lord that's that's going to deliver them. And what that represents is there are spiritual forces at work behind the events that we can see in a physical way. Um, Hebrews, the first chapter, verse 14 says, are not angels are ministering spirits sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. What's that say, folks? Doesn't that say angels are at work in our world doing service on our, on our behalf? I don't know how they do it. I don't, I don't see them doing it. But at the same time, I believe they, they do this. Yeah. And, and similarly, uh, the devil has his angels. The devil has been cast down. He's been bound. And yet he still walks about as a roaring lion, according to First Peter 5, seeking whom he may, may devour. He still has the ability to work some influence. He cannot take over those who are God's people against their will. Yeah. But if he can do that, why is it, if he has the ability to exercise some influence in this world, why would it be unthinkable that demons might be his agents in doing that? Setting aside the question of demon possession. Right. And, and so then you have this passage in Romans, the eighth chapter. And if we allow their spiritual forces at work in this world, I think we should. Uh, we should understand that. But then if, if we are God's people, if we are servants of God, of Jesus Christ, if we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we need not fear that somehow some demon could take us over and take us from God. Romans, the eighth chapter, where Paul is saying, if God is for us, who is against us? And he asks a lot of rhetorical questions to make the point, you know, who is he, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who's he that condemns? It's Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks a lot of questions. Shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I want to come down to verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he says principalities, he's using a word there in connection with angels, a word that is used elsewhere in Paul's writings for spiritual beings, including evil spiritual beings. For example, in Ephesians, Paul uses that language. Um, we are fighting against not the flesh and blood, but the principalities. Um, how does he say it? I should be able For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Thank you. So, so, we, so there are these spiritual forces that work in the world, and they're opposing us. But if we are God's people, we need not worry that somehow one of these things could take us over and take us from God. That's what Paul says in Romans, the eighth chapter. I think that Ephesians 6, 12 passage is really important to understand. Uh, and, and I think it just answers the question completely. Uh, the spiritual hosts, it, it seems like it's plural in that text in a couple of different ways. It's powers, multiple, uh, against spiritual hosts, uh, plural. Um, and so it's not just the devil, but it's this company, uh, this, uh, this group, at least it appears in, in the English. Uh, there may be something that would 
dispel that idea in, in Greek, but the way that it's written there and in Ephesians 3 um, uh, it looks pretty clear like we're dealing with something much greater than just the devil doing something. He has yeah. his minions, his angels, his servants. First uh, Timothy 4, verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I don't, I don't know how you take that language other than there are demons. You know, I, I, I don't know how you explain that away. Um, well, J- James's statement the, concerning faith, the demons believe and tremble. Uh, so, you know, yeah. there's, I think there's plenty of evidence to, to, to say for certain there are demons. Uh, now the question would be, I guess, do they possess man the same as they did in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts? Well, and let, let's talk about that, Joe. Um, if I told you that I speak in tongues, what would you say to me? Você pode falar em português? I don't speak Portuguese, but no. Uh, let's say I go, I'd say I've got a granddaughter that does that. Yes. <laughs> but that's not speaking in tongues from the Bible's vantage point. It's not. No, it's not. Okay. The, the word tongues uh, just means languages. In fact, it's the same word in Spanish and in, in Portuguese and uh, other languages. The word language and tongue are the same word. Yep. So we am speaking in tongues. Uh, I think that's just an unfortunate translation. It means speaking in languages is what it is. But they're, they're languages that are understandable throughout the scriptures. So if I was to try and convince you that you can still speak in tongues today, what would you expect me to do? Speak in a language then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speak in a language that you've, never, that you've not studied before. Uh, like what the apostles did, what we see uh, in scriptures where people spoke in a language that they had not prepared beforehand uh, what they were going to say. And of course, in talking about this, we're setting aside 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and what we believe there. So similarly, the point I want to make with demon possession, if someone wants to prove to me that demons still possess people in the way they did in the New Testament, I would need some proof that I can see with my own eyes. And I, I don't think I'm out of line to ask that. Am, am I right? Well, let's, let's, take, let's take this question another way. Let's bite it off in chunks, okay? Right. The first chunk, uh, instead of just saying, are there demon possessions generally, say, are there demon possessions among God's people? And, and let's start there. In Zechariah, the 13th chapter, we have a passage <clears throat> that is a messianic passage it's talking about the day in which a fountain is opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That's an obvious reference to uh, the blood of Jesus being shed and cleansing from sin. And it talks about the idea of cleansing from sin, removing impurities. It says this, verse 2, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I'll also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. Now, the first thing that we need to understand is what does the, the land mean? And let me ask the question this way. In the context of Old Testament Israel, if you said the land, what did that mean? The promised land, Palestine. Yeah. The promised land. But the promised land for the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness on their way to a promised land, 
foreshadows a spiritual promised land that's realized in Christ. And I think we see <coughs> references to that or usages of that, for example, in Psalm 30, I believe it's Psalm 37 in verse 11. Is that where it says the meek shall inherit the earth, exactly. which is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 5, 5. He's not talking about the, the globe. The word there is the land. And what it means is the meek are going to inherit God's land, and that's the spiritual habitation. That's the, the point in verse 29 of the same psalm where it says, uh, I think some translations say the righteous will dwell in the earth forever uh, or will dwell in the land forever. And the idea is the promised land, meaning the spiritual habitation of God's people. So here in Zechariah 13, it says that he's going to cut off the names of the idols from the land. The Old Testament concept of the promised land foreshadowing the spiritual habitation of God's people. In other words, idols aren't going to be in the church. And then it says uh, that the prophets, and here the context is false prophets. In fact, the Septuagint actually says false prophets here, and the unclean spirit. So as, as, as there's a purging, as there is the removal of sin and impurity, according to verse 1, it mentions specifically idols being removed, and false prophets, and unclean spirits. So among God's people, we're not going to have to worry about unclean spirits possessing us. I think I can say that much. Now, the next chunk is, outside of that, are there still the is there still the possibility that there are demon possessions? Some would observe, and Chase, I think you said something to this effect earlier, maybe, that it made sense in the first century, or maybe, Joe, you did, that when there were demon possessions, there were also men equipped with the ability to cast out demons. Um, the apostles could cast out demons. Of course, Jesus could cast out demons. Uh, maybe we should think of those two as going together, that you wouldn't have demon possessions when there aren't men casting out demons. I don't know that I know that. I don't know that I can say there's no such thing as demon possessions amongst anybody today. I don't know but what some... You know, demon possessions in the first century manifested themselves in all kinds of what looked like physical and psychological ailments. Is it possible that sometimes today God has allowed this to happen? I don't know that I can say that, but I would say it seems they flourished at a time God allowed them to flourish so that Jesus' power could be demonstrated over Satan's kingdom. And here, here is one thing we can say, and as Jeff has stated, if you're in the body of Christ, this is not something you have to worry about. Yeah. In first so, John, I was just going to say, First John 4 and verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no temptation to take us such as man can bear, um, and God will not suffer you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Joe Ham makes another comment, and I think this is important. It is when Jesus has cast out that demon in Matthew, the 12th chapter, and some of the Jews heard it and said, oh, he just did it by Beelzebub, meaning by the power of the devil. And Jesus shows why that doesn't make any sense. And then he, then he gives the alternative. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you? In other words, the Old Testament prophets had anticipated the coming of the Messianic kingdom as being accompanied by God's spirit. In two ways here in Matthew 12, Jesus is saying what you're seeing points to the fact that the Messiah is here, the kingdom is here. Number one, 
The fact that I have power over demons. And number two, the fact that I can cast them out by the Holy Spirit. So what you should be seeing is this is evidence the kingdom is here. And, and what that does for us is kind of goes back to where we started the program, Chase. And that is that demons flourished at this time. They were allowed to flourish. They can't do anything what God allows them to do. Mm-hmm. God allowed them to flourish and, pos- and, and, and th- cast them out to show the kingdom is here. So what we do know is that demon possession in abundance was something that happened as part of the demonstration that the kingdom was arriving. Well, that seems to be a a thing unique to that time. I'm not saying there can be no possibility of demon possession today. I don't think we see going on today what was going on in the first century. Right. And I I think that's a, oh, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. Well, I think we're going to say the same thing. Go ahead. No, we probably weren't, so you go ahead. I was say, I, I think that that is a, an important distinction to make, is that what people claim as demon possession today is not what we often see throughout the scriptures. You know, you don't see somebody with human strength like the, the demonic man in Mark 5 that lived in the graveyard uh, and those kinds of situations. Uh, what you see is people having messed their mind up sometimes by drugs or alcohol or something like that, and they're suffering the consequences of that. But there's no evidence that that is a direct operation of, of some demonic being. Uh, again, I can't say that there is no, but one thing we do know is that if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. Yeah. That's a promise that God has given us. If anybody listening is in any way afraid of being possessed by the demon, come to God's land. Zachariah 13 passages. There you go. Yeah. That, and I think that's a great, great way to end uh, this study today. So I really appreciate you guys. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jeff, for your comments. Um, and thank you to all the viewers um, who participated and for watching and listening. Uh, this has been Bible Quest Wednesday edition. We will see you all next Wednesday. Thanks, guys.